You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 42 of Tax Talks. This is Heido Robson. This time, most of us will see some clients buying or selling a business, or we might buy or sell our tax or accounting practice. I asked Patrick Huang of Argo Lawyers whether he could walk us through the most common pitfalls. And he kindly said yes. Here's Patrick. Let's talk about what we call business and legal issues from the seller's perspective when it comes to selling business from a small business CGT perspective. There are a number of topics to cover here, but the general sort of overview is to say that some of these issues may be raised by the lawyers. Um, some of these issues may go towards tax implications. But the one guiding principle here is that the tax professional and the solicitor will need to work hand in hand to ensure that, that one, that they're able to get the small sufficiency concession. And secondly, that whatever deal has been struck is properly documented and the deal itself doesn't override the concessions is the main point to be driven from this. Because it's usually about a lot of money and it would be terrible if the exemptions don't apply because of small clause missing in the contract or... Yes, yes, that's right, that's right, um, which which means that the tax professional and the solicitor will need to work, work hand in hand and they can work each other as sort of a check. Um, I say that in the sense that... If there are certain things that the tax professional needs to do in order to claim the concessions, for example, when they want to put contributions into super, at the time that they make the contribution or beforehand, they'll need to fill out the relevant CGT cap election form and need to be submitted to the super fund before the contribution was made or during or when the contribution was made. Otherwise, they won't be, won't be able to get the concession. I see. So that's especially an issue if the taxpayer doesn't have an SMSF yes. but contributes the money to a, a large super fund. Yes, that's right, that's right. Which is why with the solicitor, the solicitor can sort of help with that by saying we can build that sort of provision into the into the relevant share sale or business asset sale agreement. Solicitors are great in, when doing deals, are great in terms of project managing a lot of these finer sort of legal and sort of details, which, which also includes telling or reminding or following up with the tax professional. Obviously, if you're a good tax professional, you won't, there won't need to be a follow-up, but, but it's good to know that they can have your back and say that in my role as a project manager, um, I know that um, this contribution is due at this date because the tax laws say that it needs to be done at this date. Um, please ensure that it's done at this date. So um, it can be useful useful to the tax practitioner to use solicitors in that sort of way. Um, so you, you guys work as a team. That's what it is. So let's get in, so getting into these issues first. I might signpost what they what they are. There are some sort of common issues, but there are some sort of issues which you may not think about but it's still important from, from the perspective of trying to claim the concessions. The first one is whether the business owner 
um, wants to be further in, wants to have further involvement in the business after, after he's sold his interest. This is sort of important for the purpose of the 15-year exemption. Because that requires retirement. Because that requires um, retirement in the sense that the sale is in connection with an individual's retirement. If the contract then says the seller will assist the new buyer for the next 12 months on a full-time basis, then that would be a very dangerous clause to have. Yes, that's right, because it seems to suggest that the that the seller is still working for the business full time at least you know for 12 mm. months what's the cut off how much can you still work in the business and still kind of officially yeah. retire so um the ATO don't have much guidance on this there's not many cases around in this in this area the only guidance that we have from the ATO is ironically is from their advanced guide to small business UT concessions and their guidance there is is that there has to be a significant reduction in the number of hours work. Mm-hmm. Um, in the examples that they've provided, um, one example is where you have where you have a seller who's wo- seller who's worked for the business. They used to work sixty hours, but post sale they've reduced the hours to forty five, uh, thirty five to forty five hours. Um, in that instance, the ATO says no, that's not enough. Um, on the other hand, in another example, they've said that there's another seller that's working for a few hours a week, and the ATO says that that's okay. So then there's a sort of a gray area in between saying, mm, what if he wants to go for, say, 10 hours a week or 15, because it's, it's a little mm. bit less than so 35. The cutoff is not clear. Mm. If you work as a consultant, you just mm-hmm. come in for a couple of hours a week to look over the shoulders of the new, yes. of the new owner, and just give him an, uh, some tips here and there. Yes, then that's okay. But if you kind of still actively involved in actually running the business, then that's not okay. What we've done for a few of our clients is we sort of structured it by way of the the seller um, getting a sort of a of a sort of a fee for mentorship or tuition to the new person that's coming in to run the business. Um, and we, ch- and we sort of charge it as sort of a contract, uh, um, sort of, sort of rates. And it is only, uh, maybe few hours a week, four, five, six hours a week. Um, and in that sort of circumstance is very clear because these peers providing tuition and mentoring. It's, it can, the argument can be made, I think, quite strongly that it is connected with individual retirement. So, um, that's what we've done for clients in the past. The next uh, topic is, and I think this is a topic that I think needs to be spelled at the very, very beginning when you need to form a deal, is whether you want to sell the shares in the company that holds the business or the interests in a trust that holds the business or whether you want to actually sell the business assets themselves. Um, and there are a number of consideration, number of considerations here. Generally speaking, if you're only thinking about tax um, from a purely um, tax perspective, because of the way the 3% CGT concessions work, um, you'd much prefer a share sale as opposed to an asset sale. Um, you get more money in your, in your pocket that way because by way of the 3% CGT concession... Because when you do an asset sale, remember this is in the context of the small business concessions. 
where you have an asset sale, you get all your various you get all your various concessions. That is fifteen year retirement. You've got your fifteen year retirement. You've got your fifty percent. You've got your uh, retirement as well. But you don't have another fifty percent for the for the fact that you've held um, the shares for more than twelve months because you're an individual, as opposed to a share sale where you, as the individual that sell it, not only do you get your fifteen fifteen year retirement and fifty percent exemption, you also get your fifty percent discount. Division one hundred five. That's right. That's right. Okay. And also. Under the under the model where you're selling the business assets, when you want to get the cash out into your hands, then there's liquidation, and with the liquidation, there's also um, there's also issues there's also tax issues involved with that as well. In terms of how much of your of, your, of the net assets that you get is going to be in, un, a deduction into the capital count. Um, to the extent it's a capital count, then there's no tax, but to but to the extent that it's above, then it's the dividends, which could be franked. But there's still a tax consequence there. But with the sale of shares, it's just you've got your concessions and it's a straight 50% and you've got the cash in hand already. There's no further tax to be, to be, to be paid. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, there are other commercial or legal ramifications as well. Now, vendors obviously will prefer share sales because when you sell the shares, you sell, you, you relinquish all of your rights in relation to the company, which also means that you get rid, you get rid of, as far as the seller is concerned, any liabilities. Yes. All liabilities goes with the company. Yes, or contingent liabilities. Any, or even contingent liabilities bo- too. Any dead bodies in the... Skeletons, yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which is, and purchasers generally don't like that. All they really want is the business assets. So the purchasers will prefer an asset sale because they don't want to inherit the liabilities. They don't want to inherit the skeletons in the closet. And so this could be a point of negotiation between the seller, between the buyer and the seller. Mm-hmm. So and for the, the seller, it's better to do a share sale. For the buyer, it's better to do an asset sale. Yes, that's right. Sometimes the sometimes other commercial ramifications might tilt one to the other. For example, um, when it comes to the sale of a rent of a real estate agency, when it comes to and and it comes and obviously with that there has to be the transfer of the rent roll contracts. Um, commonly under rent roll contracts, where you change control of the of the business. Such as in an asset sale, commonly there's a clause in there which says that if that happens, there's a change of control of the service provider, being the property manager, that w- that is deemed to be an ass- deemed to be um, an assignment, and with that, it gives the option for the client to terminate the contract. So in that case, a share sale is also better for the buyer. Yes, that's right, because it gives certainty. It gives certainty that the rent roll doesn't get lost. Yes, that's right. And because commonly the purchase price will be will be a multiple of the revenue that's generated from the rent roll. Um, and if the if it's the case that if you undertake an asset sale and clients are lost, then there's there's no further then you're you're, you're, you're over you've overpaid for for the asset. 
and that's not a good thing. Which is why sometimes share sales might be has to be the way to go, and and that's a commercial driver. That's unrelated to tax. That's driving that decision. Um, but in, but in any case, the good thing about the concessions is that it doesn't matter whether it's an asset sale or a share sale. You are able to access the concessions subject to meeting the requirements. The next thing to talk about is, and I think I've talked about this before, is about I've touched on this before, is timing. Timing, timing, timing. Timing is 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 crucial. Um, it's crucial in terms of claiming the concessions. It's also very very crucial in terms of contracts as well. Um, timelines, deadlines, timeframes is 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 absolutely key because the uh, net asset value is determined just before the CGT event. Mm-hmm. That's right. Whereas the um, whether something is active asset or not is looked at over the period of the ownership. So for active asset or not, mm-hmm. timing might not be as critical. Yes. But for the net asset value test in general, or the maximum net asset value test mm-hmm. in general, it's just before the CGT event. Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, and so it's important to kind of drive when the CGT event happens. Absolutely. So in the sense that where you're sort of on the border in terms of, so for example, you want to claim the 15-year exemption, but you haven't met the seven and a half years that's required to meet in 15-year exemptions, then you need to wait for a number. Then you might need to wait for a bit longer before you actually sign the contract. Because when you, because when you actually exchange contracts, it's actually the relevant date mm-hmm. um, for CGT purposes. That's when you actually crystallize your CGT and I event. Think, I think many... Many forget that for CGT it's the contract date, not the settlement absolutely, date. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I guess um, at this point I'll say that as tax pr- practitioners, um, you are m- more or less on the front foot in the sense that um, a deal, yes, a deal is going to be happening. There are various terms that have been floated around and all and and the like. Um, it is important for the tax practitioner at this point in time to tell the client that if you want to claim these conditions, then these conditions will need to be satisfied. And that will be put into a memo or into a sort of advice. And after you signed off on the, after the advice, it's really those sort of parameters that's, that's in there that will, uh, that will, that could drive how the, deal is structured and documented. Um, so it is tax, in, in that sense, it is tax driving the commercial because dates are important, time is important, uh, which further emphasise the need for the tax petition to work with a solicitor. Sometimes parties prepare a mem- memorandum of understanding or preliminary draft, all that doesn't count. It's only the actual signing of the final contract. That ca- um, that triggers the CGT. I'll actually event. I'll actually speak to that because there may be a risk there may be a risk that certain memorandums of understanding or heads of agreement, if you like, if they are found to be binding, binding. then that is when the CGT event happened. Um, I'll refer to a case of Confidential and F and the Federal Commission on Taxation. 2013 AATA 76, where the parties has actually entered into a heads of agreement. They did a formal sale agreement about four months later, but in the actual heads of agreement itself, it actually stated, and I quote, 
the vendor agrees to sell to the purchaser and the purchaser agrees to purchase from the vendor the vendor's interest in the business on the terms and conditions set up below. And the actual terms and conditions were set up below. Um, the court actually found that 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 the signing of that heads agreement was the relevant contract date for CGT purposes. So, um, yeah, that's very unfortunate. It is very it is very very unfortunate. Um, so the rule here is so to try and prevent that sort of thing is. Don't make it a legally binding contract. Don't sign anything. Don't sign it. Perhaps prepare it and draft, but don't don't sign it. Um, perhaps you don't need to make an agreement at all. We just simply sign the formal sale contract itself. Um, but if you do want sort of a heads of agreement or some sort, make sure that it's not legally binding and you can get out of it at any time if the parties choose to do so. Um, but the safest option, obviously, is not to have any agreement at all. Don't sign anything at all. You can have until the relevant until deadline. The, until yes. it's safe. I mean, you can certainly have documents and deals flying, um, flying around to have to reach the sort of a understanding. But um, do everything that you can to ensure that it's not considered to be binding mm-hmm. until it's safe. Until it's safe. That's right. So. That's the only thing to say there. Timing obviously is important, as I've touched on before, when it comes to depositing monies into super, pursuant to the pursuant to being able to access the concessions. So, as, as I said before, it may it may be worthwhile putting into the contract specific amounts at specific dates to actually go into super. So. Please advise your clients about what those particular timeframes will be, and once you know what those timeframes are, embed those into the contract. The one to talk about is related party loans. This is sort of important for the purposes of the 80% active asset test because when you do have um, sort of debts or you do have excess cash in the business, um, that's with a related party as well. An argument could be made that it's actually not they're actually not active assets. They're just simply they're just simply there as a matter of because of um, certain transactions they've been into with related parties. Um, so in that sense, it'll be good to get those um, those cleaned in a sense. Mm. So this is basically another thing to look out for when the contracts are drafted. Yes, I think it also helps to to bring this up at the deal making stage too, um, and also imp- it also impacts on your tax advice as well because because of the existence of because of the existence of existing loans or this excess cash, it may be that your active asset test may not be satisfied. So as part of as part of the exercise, um, you it's want to look, to look into to look into that. And you want to be also be careful of part for A as well, because if you're doing these sorts as part for A as well, although it could be argued that cleaning up these loans and getting the excess cash, makes it's all part anyway. of it's, it. It just makes sense anyway. It's good commercial sense to do so anyway um, for the buyer, because for a buyer coming in, they'd like to have a clean balance sheet with just assets and known liabilities. No loan to Uncle David. No. <laughs> precisely, precisely. Um, so that is something to be to be looked to be definitely looked into. Um, the on the flip side of the loan the loan transaction is 
Um, maybe you might need to forgive some loans as well, so that the company doesn't isn't owed any monies from related from one of your related parties, and that's just part of the transaction. Obviously, you have loan、um, debt forgiveness rules that come into play as well.、Um, that will need to be looked at in terms of、um, the advice that you might give as part of your、um, CGD concessions,、uh, along with any advice around. You know, around sale of other business assets such as trading stock, plant equipment, other CGT assets, and the like.、Um, so that's all very much all part of your of your tax advice when it needs to be given.、Um, now the main one, and this is really for the vendors,、um, and this is all done from the perspective of the vendor, is about guarantees.、Um, It's not really a tax sort of issue. It's more of a more of a legal issue.、Um, it's important because, as a vendor, you want you want to ensure that you leave no stone unturned and you don't have any lingering lingering personal liabilities after you sold the business.、Um, so, as part of the whole transaction, you need to ensure that if you are, so for example, if the business has loans or It's or it's subject to a lease, and you've given a personal guarantee that you are、uh, that you ensure that you are released from your from your guarantee as well.、Uh, very very important because if you don't get released, and for whatever for whatever reason the business under new owner doesn't go well,、um, then the landlord or the bank can call upon the guarantee if if you are not released.、Um, and commonly part of the as part of the transaction. Um, Commonly, what we see is that the new principal that's going to be running a business will then become the new guarantor in relation to the lease、mm. or or the or the bank loan. I can imagine it's a point that is often easily forgotten. The business、yes. owner gave a guarantee to the bank、mm-hmm. a few years ago, forgot about it, selling the business, and the guarantee is still sitting with the bank. That's right. That's right. And it's much much easier to deal with the to deal with the guarantee then when you're selling the business than it than it is、later. to do later. Yeah, because, because later you have no leverage left. You have no leverage, and you're not in control of the business anymore.、Mm. So you have no ability to turn around、mm. to turn the business around. So this can be a very very expensive oversight. If it's not being looked at properly, and any goods and any goods solicitor or lawyer should be able to look into 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 the guarantor things、uh, provisions, and if there's anything that's that's left,、um, there are other other couple of legal issues that need to be raised as well.、Um, these are more in the con. These are more in the context of of the purchases, as in these are the things that the purchases will need to consider.、Um, the one is about PPSR interests.、Ah, yes. Um, that is obviously the PPSR regime has been around for a number of years now. Yes,、so. but I, I think it's not really at the forefront of the public mind. Yes, I, I think many people don't actually think of it. It's important where you. So it's it, in a, in a way it is similar to having、um, a mortgage over your house、um, rather than, rather than having a mortgage. Over property, you're now having mortgages over、Asset. over non-real assets. You know, shares, cars, be, cars, equipment, printers, equipment, plants, plants and equipment,、um, and there can be devastating consequences、um, if you don't 
actually have registrations. So the risk is that the buyer forgets to raise the issue that the PPSR is changed, that the registration is signed over to the buyer. It's it's more a case where more a case that the buyer needs to be aware that that the business asset or the or the sale of the business that they're taking over is subject to the PPSR interest or subject to that charge, if you like, or. Oh, it I see. So the risk is that the um, buyer buys an asset subject it, to those interests, and there's actually somebody else who has a charge over this asset. So, for example, yes. a bank has registered a, uh, an interest in the PPSR over that bulldozer over, or over that truck. Yes, that's right. That's right. And so they think they're getting an unencumbered asset, but but the, really they're they're getting an, a, an encumbered a charge asset. Charge over it. Mm. Yes. Um, so, like I said, any good solicitor. Um, that's Checks acting the for the, that's acting for the purchaser should be able to check these things. Yeah. Um, so just one thing to to check yeah. off your list. The other legal issue. And so maybe we should just quickly say what PPSR yes. stands for. It's, it's uh, personal, personal property, property securities register. Register. Um, or PPSS interest PPSR personal property securities register is where those PPS interests are registered. The other legal issue is restraints. Um, and with restraints, it's in, for the purchasers, it's important to ensure that the restraints in your sale contract or in a separate or in a separate deed um, ensures that the buyer is able to um, protect the goodwill um, of the business, and that. Um, and so, restraints would be um, you're not allowed to trade in this area, or. Yes. So the vendor. So commonly, the vendor will be willing to give restraint whereby they say, "I'm not. I am not going to be contacting your cust. You know, my former customers. Not going to be enticing staff away. I'm not going to say anything, anything bad about the business. Disparaging remarks. Uh, I'm not going to work for a competing business or set up a competing business." All those sorts of things. Yes, and they're also often referred to as restrictive com- covenants, isn't yes, it? Yes, they're one the same thing: restrictive covenants or rest- or restraints. Commonly, they're over over. Commonly, it's over area, and commonly, it's over a period of time. Um, those need to be looked at carefully to ensure that restraints are not considered to be unreasonable, because if restraints are considered to go uh, to go beyond what is actually necessary to, to protect the goodwill. And the profitability of the business, um, then it can be struck out by a mm. court. And I think that just happened recently with an IVF doctor. I think she left the company. It wasn't through a business sale; it was just an employee leaving. But yes. she signed a restraint and then went to court. To act, and I think the restraint was actually found to be unreasonable and therefore void. Yes, I mean it, it all turns on how the restraint is structured and exactly what the business is 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 doing. Um, so, so um, having a standard restraint clause um, doesn't cut it, um, to be frank, because it all depends on the facts and circumstances of the business that you're dealing with. Um, uh, to make sure they make can't sure, be deemed unreasonable. That's right. That's right. Um, so that's an important area to, to, to be of concern, particularly for buyers as well, uh, especially for buyers. The one area that, um, the one area where it's of concern for vendors is to ensure that your restraint doesn't prevent you from doing things that the vendor wants to do after the sale. So after they've retired, they'd like to do certain things, 
the rest- you need to ensure that restraint doesn't prevent them from doing those things. For example, I had one client that wanted that sold their financial planning business, and they just wanted to make sure and the rest- and the and the financial planning client that sold the business wanted to do some coaching and mentoring um, um, to other financial planners about his experiences, they give them guidance and advice and the, and the like, over and beyond the advice and the, and the mentorship that's going to be given to the new person that's coming in to buy it to manage his business. And he just wanted to make sure that the restraints in there um, did not stop him from, stop doing, him that. from doing that. So we we had so I actually had to review the restraint clause a little more carefully for that and found it was actually okay. So, but that process will still need to be needs to be had. Um, the other area to look at is, um, and this is more of a, of a of a legal due diligence to be done by the purchasers, is um, is reviewing contracts for deemed assignments or triggers. Uh, like the example I did before with the real estate agency, where a rent roll contract could be terminated by a client if there is a chain of control of the of the service provider, that is the property manager. Um, in that similar way, um, the purchaser will be minded, reminded to look to ensure that any contracts which they derive money from, from providing goods and services don't have those sort of deemed clauses in there which entitles your customer to terminate. Um, And this is actually quite common in um, retail or commercial leases where there may be provisions in there where there's there's a change in control of of the tenant being the business, then the landlord is entitled, then that is considered to be a breach and the landlord can terminate the lease Unless certain conditions satisfied, that is, you need to get landlord's consent. So that needs to be factored into and thought into into the contract as well. Um, there are um, the other one to talk about is what's known as excluded assets. Um, that's especially relevant for an, that's an a, asset that's, sale. That's that's relevant for an asset sale um, in the context of the event, or it could be it could be relevant for a, for a share sale as well because. Um, there may be certain things that's owned by the business that the seller wants, still wants to keep. Hmm. Um, back to the example of where... Or, or the seller might argue the business never owned this asset. Yes, yes. There could be a certainty so around, around that. there might be an expensive painting in the reception. Oh, yes, absolutely. The seller, the seller absolutely. assumes that's part of the business. The buyer yes. argues, no, that was right never on, part. Right on point, on point. The client that I was dealing with that sold their accounting practice where 5% of the purchase was held in escrow, he wanted to ensure that some of his paintings, a couple of his red chairs, a couple of tables... And any and any cash held in the business were taken out. They were his, um, so they did not form part of the sale. Looking so in that sort of sense, making sure that for the vendor that um, that the vendor is able to keep by way of listing in the excluded assets those things, paintings, chairs, cars, um, cash that they'd like to keep. Um, there are other there are other sort of legal and commercial and contractual issues to to deal with as well. Um, but these are the ones that, as a tax practitioner, you should be most aware of. Most aware of because 
there will come a stage where you'll need to be reviewed that you as a tax practitioner will need to review the contract to ensure that the contract the terms of the contract um, still entitles your client to maintain or get access to the concessions but in the meantime it might be good to look into those issues that I talked about and raise it to the to the solicitor um, because in, in, in terms sure of just to make sure I, yeah, everything is, is more than two yes and also because you're acting for the business interests of your client I mean commonly with with tax professionals um, or accountants these days they are the trusted advisors for clients um, and they, 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 you are sort of relied on to look after the client's best interests. This is one of the ways in which to do that. Welcome back. Most of the points Patrick mentioned are relatively straightforward and probably not difficult to get right. But I can imagine just so easy to forget and hence get wrong and probably often expensive mistakes to make. In the next episode, episode 43, Stephen Fine of Growth Focus will talk about the top 10 mistakes sellers make when selling an accounting or tax practice. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.